Amen. Thank you, Seth and Annalise, for leading us in our singing this morning. Good morning. Uh, Good to see everybody here this morning. Welcome, especially if you're a guest with us today. We're glad you came out and decided to worship with us on our first dry morning in quite a while. Uh, My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and uh, it's going to be my privilege this morning to lead us in our study of the book of Colossians. We've been working our way through Colossians uh, since September. Uh, going through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, trying to understand the message of this book and apply it to our lives. So if you have your copy of the Bible with you this morning, uh, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 3.22 through 4.1 this morning. Uh, the, the chapter break between 3 and 4 is kind of in a funky place, so 4.1 goes with 3.22. Uh, if I could talk to the people who invented chapters and verses in the Bible, I would ask them, what on earth were you thinking here? I'm not really sure, so we're just going to go with it. Um, But 3.22 through 4.1 is what we're going to be looking at today. As we've been working through Colossians, uh, we've been looking in the first two chapters at the glories of Jesus, at his supremacy over all things, at the beauty and the wonder of the gospel message that calls us out of darkness and into light. And as we move here into chapter 3, we've begun to look at the implications of that message, at what the gospel calls us to be. When we are transformed by Jesus, it means some things in our life have to go. It means some things have to come into our life. We change the way that we think. We change the way that we act. We change the way that we relate to one another. And last week, we looked at what I said at the time was probably our easiest interpretation and application that we've done the entire book. We looked at some very simple and direct commands of how the gospel transforms our family life, relationship of husbands and wives, parents and children. Well, this week, we're going to continue to look at the implications of the gospel on social relationships. And once again, we have very simple and straightforward commands, but this week, something's going to be a little different. Whereas last week, the context was very familiar, family, something that we all uh, are a part of to one degree or another. When we talk about husbands, wives, parents, kids, we can relate to that dynamic very, very easily. But this week, we're talking about a context that is largely foreign to us today, the notion of masters and servants, and even masters and slaves, Now, this social dynamic is no longer present in our culture, so usually when we read this passage, it throws us for a bit of a loop. What what is the Bible talking about here? Does the Bible even endorse slavery? We We get confused, we get a little bit troubled, and usually what we do is we try to get to application as quickly as possible, and we we go and we apply this to the next closest context which we have in our society, which is employers and employees. So a lot of times we look at this text and we want to ask, how does this change the way I work as a Christian? And that's a very valid application. We're going to talk about that this morning. But I want to suggest that if we're going to really understand this text, then we've got to dig into it and we've got to understand it on its own terms. What was Paul saying to masters and slaves in that culture? And understand that in its depth, understand that in its, uh, in its radical nature, and then only then can we begin to take the principle that we find and apply it to modern life. And we're going to apply it to employers and employees, but as we understand what's being said, I think we'll discover that the application actually goes much farther than just how you are at work. What's being said here is something that's transformative about the nature of authority itself and how it should work among people in different relationships. So we're going to dig into the text 
We're going to understand what it is that Paul is saying to the Colossians, to masters at Colossae, to slaves, to servants at Colossae. We're going to try to to pluck a principle out of that that is timeless, and then we're going to apply it to life in a way that will transform, hopefully, not only our workplaces, but every area of life. So Colossians 3, I want you to join me in reading. Uh, It will be up on the screen as well, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, where God's word says this. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's God's word to us this morning. Let's pray as we continue. Our Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, Make us, by your spirit, by your grace, to your glory, we pray in Christ's name this morning. Help us. Amen. All right, so the very first thing that we have to do here as we get into verse 22 is we have to understand this term, bondservant. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Right, until we understand who Paul is talking to, we're not going to be able to get a real grasp on what he's calling them to do. Context matters. So what is a bondservant? Well, and maybe if you have a different translation of the Bible, you might even see a different word there. So we preach usually from the ESV here. If you have an ESV that has been printed since 2011, you'll see the word bondservant like we just read. However, if you're using an ESV from pre-2011, you will see slave. In an update of the ESV in 2011, they actually changed a little bit of the translation for different reasons, and they switched from slaves to bondservants. But you might have an ESV that says, slaves obey your masters. Uh, If you use the NASB or the NIV, you will find slaves there. If you use other translations like the King James, you might even just see servants. So we have slaves, we have servants, we have bondservants. Who are we talking to? What, what is this? How should we understand the audience of this command? Because when we talk about slaves and bondservants and servants, each of those terms calls to mind a very different mental picture. So for instance, when I say the word servant, you probably picture something like Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey, or maybe Bruce Wayne's trusty butler, Alfred. You, you picture someone who serves another, but with a great degree of dignity and freedom. When we say the word servant, that's usually what pops to my mind, at least. However, if I say the word slave, you probably have a very different mental picture. If I say slave, you probably picture a black person abused and oppressed under the cruel institution of the American South 200 years ago. Someone who was beaten, someone who was abused, who was stripped of any rights and dignity. So when I say slave, when I say servant, you get very different mental pictures. When I say the word bondservant, you probably picture nothing at all, if you're like me, (laughs) because that's not a word we ever use. So what, is, what does this mean? Which context should we understand this in? Well, the Greek word that we translate in those different ways is the word doulos. 
And this word can actually mean bondservant, slave, or servant. It can mean any of the above, depending on the context in which we find it. To illustrate that, let's hop around to a couple different texts and see how the Bible uses this term. One spot it pops up is in a text that might be familiar to many of us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, talking about Jesus. The text says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, doulos, being born in the likeness of men. But then we jump over to Paul, same author, using the same word in Romans 6, and we find it says this, Romans 6, 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, doulos, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Same word, doulos, translated in two different contexts in two different ways. We find the focus in Philippians 2 on Christ taking the form of a servant, coming not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Romans 6, we're talking with this illustration of being set free from a slavery to sin. So this word has a wide range of meaning and can cover a lot of ground in terms of who it's addressing. And bondservant, when we talk about the term bondservant, this was a very kind of specific term that was used culturally in that time. A bondservant in the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world, was one who was bound under contract to serve another, usually for a period of 10 years or less. So think of bondservant, uh, if you remember back to, to school and to history classes, this is kind of an indentured servitude. This is somebody who would enter into a contract to serve someone else uh, for a set period of time. Now, during that period of time, they were essentially slaves. They were under the full and complete direction of their master. But after their agreed time of servitude was up, they would usually be given a wage that the master was putting aside during their service. They'd be given a wage and given their freedom and go on their way. So think of bond servant as a period of temporary slavery for a set period of time. And so Paul is addressing in our text today all of these people. He's addressing servants who would have had a great degree of freedom and independence. He's addressing bond servants who were in slavery for a set period of time, usually because of some economic hardship that had fallen on them. And he's addressing slaves who are completely enslaved to someone else with no hope of liberation anytime in the near future. He's addressing all these people. That's what the word means in its full context. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm probably going to talk about slaves most commonly as we work our way through the text, because that's the most extreme example, right? If we can catch the full force of what Paul is calling slaves to do here, then we're going to be able to back that up and apply them to bond servants, apply it to servants, and then make application to ourselves today. But we have to understand too, contextually, how is the slavery that Paul is addressing different than the slavery that probably pops into your mind? We did that mental exercise. What do you picture when I say slave? It's very American in its context because of our country's long and horrible and sordid history with slavery. But the slavery that existed in the Greco-Roman Empire was different, not necessarily better. It was better in some respects, but it wasn't a shining example of a great thing you want to have. Uh, but it was different than our slavery. So we need to understand, again, the context of what's being addressed so that we can treat and apply well. 
So what are, how was the, the slavery of Paul's day different than American slavery that we're more familiar with? Well, for one, it wasn't race-based. There were slaves from Rome, there were slaves from Africa, there were slaves who were Jews, who were Greeks. Slavery was not a racial institution like it was in the United States and the Deep South. Uh, and it wasn't primarily based and, uh, and continued by means of kidnapping. Right? Slaves in the American South were snatched away by the slave trade from their homes in Africa, brought across the ocean on slave ships, and then sold in the Western world. Uh, the slavery of Paul's day was not primarily brought about in this way. In fact, one thing to remember, whenever you're, you're thinking about this question, somebody might ask, well, does, so does the Bible condone slavery because of what Paul said to slaves? Even if the Bible condoned slavery in every way possible, it still would have condemned the slavery of the American South because the Old Testament law specifically prohibits kidnapping someone to sell them under slavery. It was a crime punishable by death in Old Testament Israel. And that's the entire way that the slavery of the American South was perpetuated. And so even if the Bible had nothing else at all to say about slavery, the slavery that happened in this country would have been unbiblical because of how it was begun and perpetuated. So this slavery that Paul's addressing, was he's not talking to people who were kidnapped away from their country and shipped across the globe to be slaves. That wasn't the context that would have been familiar to the people at the time. Secondly, slavery in Paul's day was largely an economic institution. People would usually end up in slavery because of debt, because of poor economic situations. So there was no social safety net. There was no system of bankruptcy. And so when you became deeply indebted in that society, the most common way to get yourself out of debt was to enter into bond servanthood or slavery. And so individuals would often sell themselves into slavery, often for that period of time, in order to pay off their debts and, and get a fresh start. There was no other way for that to happen in the culture of the time. And then finally, slaves were not merely unskilled labor like we think of. Uh, but sometimes in that culture were even what we would think of today as professionals, lawyers, tradesmen, even doctors. Anybody of any profession could use their services in servitude or in slavery to another person. In fact, slavery was so widespread in the Roman Empire of the day that Paul's addressing the Colossians here that historians estimate that over half the population of the Roman Empire at this time were either slaves or had been slaves at some point in their lives. So this is a very wide-reaching command. When Paul gives these instructions to slaves, bondservants, servants, he's giving these instructions not just to a couple people off in the corner of the church, but this would have had bearing on a large part of the body of believers at Colossae. So slavery was very different in that day than it was in America, than the slavery that we tend to think of. But so does that mean like, well, the slavery back then wasn't so bad, it was no big deal? No, hardly. Masters still had absolute rights over their slaves. The slaves might not have been kidnapped. They might even have entered into slavery voluntarily, but they were still slaves. Their will was completely and totally bound over to someone else. Even in matters of life and death, slaves had no rights. They had no recourse in society. And if someone was enslaved to a cruel master, it would have been every bit of the miserable and, uh, of an existence as that of an, ex of an enslaved African in the American South. So slavery was different then, doesn't mean it was a happy thing. 
Paul is still speaking to a group of people who may have been marginalized, who may have been cruelly treated, abused, oppressed, and killed without society giving one rip about it. He is addressing those slaves here, and he's addressing servants. He's addressing bond servants. So he is giving this instruction today, here's your context, to anyone whose will was bound to the will of another to whatever degree. So whether a slave with no freedom and no hope of freedom, whether a servant with a great deal of freedom who was a a vital part of his household, whichever end of the spectrum, Paul is giving these instructions to those people. And what does he say to them in verse 22? He tells them to obey their masters. Wait, what? Not fight for your rights, not incite the revolution, not... You know, stick it to your master in any way that you can. Paul tells them, filled with the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He, in fact, uses the same qualifier that he used in the verse we examined last week for children to parents. Remember, children, obey your parents in everything. Same thing here. Bond servants, slaves, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And so at first glance, it appears, well, Paul's just putting a stamp of approval on the status quo then? This is why many people come to the text and they say, so is the Bible okay with slavery? Does the Bible think this is good and and fine? We're going to notice that what Paul is saying here in many different ways in respect is striking. Uh, And it would have changed the social dynamic of his day and and challenged it and turned it on its head in many ways. And we see that begin right here, even in this first command, when he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Earthly masters. Why qualify it? Why, Why point out that they are their earthly masters? Well, because their earthly masters were not their ultimate masters. Slaves are not bound to a man primarily, but he is making the point here. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. So he calls slaves to obey their masters, but he says to them as well, in doing so, remember Jesus. Remember that you ultimately serve Jesus, not your earthly master. And because you serve Jesus, because he has your ultimate allegiance, because he is your true master, that changes the way that you interact with those who are above you and who have authority over you here in this world. Jesus is the true master of every servant, every bond servant, every slave. And so because of that, Paul tells them to obey their masters in everything and not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We understand this concept of eye service, right? Because what he's telling them here is slaves aren't just to obey their masters when their master is looking, but always, at all times, because they obey Christ. Right, no matter how particular or overbearing an earthly master was, there would always be a time when a slave wasn't under the direct gaze of his master. These were opportunities to to cut a corner, to take some time off, to do less than your best, knowing nobody's going to know. There's not going to be any consequence, 
It's not going to, to hurt me at all. I can, I, can, I can cut a corner here. What Paul is saying is no. He's saying that works if your ultimate master is that person that you serve. He says that's not true. If your ultimate master is Christ, Christ is with you always. He is ever-present. He is with you all the time. You are never out from under his gaze. And so you need to work. You need to give effort all the time as if unto Christ. You're not working for men. You're working for Jesus. See, slaves more than anyone else in the ancient world worked for another man. Not even their sweat was their own. Everything about their life went to improve the station of somebody else. Not them. And what God is saying here through Paul is that you don't actually work for a man. It appears that your entire worth is bound up in how you improve that person's existence. That's not true. You belong to Jesus. You serve the ultimate master, the king of all creation. What you do might not seem to have any dignity whatsoever in this life, but actually it has supreme dignity. It has supreme worth. It has supreme value because you don't serve just this cruel master or you don't serve this indifferent family. You serve the one who made you. Your allegiance is higher. It's deeper. And so he tells them to direct all of their efforts accordingly. What he's doing is he's reemphasizing the command that he gave back in verse 17. Think back to Tom's sermon from a couple weeks ago in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What he's doing in verse 23 is just saying, slaves, that applies even to you. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So in your service, in your servitude, remember Jesus. Remember where your true allegiance lies. Remember whom you truly serve and conduct yourself accordingly. Now, it might seem if we just stopped right there and somebody's coming into this cold from the outside and doesn't know anything of Jesus, doesn't know anything of Christianity, this could seem to be setting up an even more harsh and an even scarier standard, right? Well, you're telling me that, that I've got to serve my master all the time, like even when he's not looking because there's this cosmic force in Jesus who's always there. It's like this, like, you know, Santa Claus, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So make sure that you don't know. Like, no, th- this isn't the kind of Jesus that we're presented with. And Paul points that out to us in verse 24 when he calls them, remember Jesus, remember your true master, but also remember the prize. Remember what it is that you're working for. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So in this instruction, Paul here is laying a remarkable promise before servants and slaves. The master that they work for, Jesus Christ, is giving them the inheritance for a reward. And because of our distance from this culture, that doesn't sound, it just sounds like a, a spin of rhetoric, right? He's just saying something here. The language that he chooses would have been striking to any slave that served it, would have been striking to any individual who heard it. Because there were some standards in society that were hard and fast. Some slaves were in better situations than others, right? There would have been some slaves and servants that were trusted and even loved members of the household. 
Some of them, in the best case scenario, might have even been treated like a member of the family. We have instances in ancient society where this would have happened. But there was one thing that never would have been heard of. Under law, there was always a crucial distinction between a slave or a servant and true family. And that is this, a slave could never under any circumstances inherit an estate. When the master passed, when they died, what they had would go to the sons. It would go to the heirs. It would never be passed to a slave, to a servant, no matter how valued, no matter how trusted. In fact, you see Paul referencing this reality in giving an illustration to the Galatians. In Galatians 4, 1 through 7, talking about how God has adopted us into his family, he references this reality in society. Listen to how he says it in Galatians 4. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In order for a slave to inherit the estate, he would have had to be adopted, at which point he's not a slave anymore, he's a son. And so Paul is using that to illustrate what God has done for us in Christ, that we are not slaves, we have been adopted as sons, we are co-heirs with Jesus. Everything that is his, all the riches, all the fullness of Christ, we will inherit, we will be given as God recreates this world and makes all things new. And the promise comes here to these lowly slaves, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You as a slave to the true master have an infinite hope. You have a promise that this one is not going to just brush your efforts aside. You're not working for him, slaving away, doing this and this and that, just so that he can sit back and take it easy. He's promising you the kingdom. He's promising you the world. Remember the prize. Let that influence the way you serve your master. That's the message that Paul is giving here. This master, your master, gives an inheritance. This is unheard of. Who does that? God does that. Jesus does that. It might seem that what Paul is saying is a familiar command, obey your masters, maintain the status quo, but what he's saying is there is a greater reality at play. There is an unseen behind the scene, and it is good news. It is a glorious promise. You have a hope, and you have a future. See, these servants and slaves would have had varying stations in life. Some would have been better off than others, but none of them were high. There were no important slaves. There were no important servants. None of them would have had much, and yet they are told in Christ they will receive all the riches of God. Those who are low and humble in this life will be highly exalted in the life to come. That's out of Jesus' mouth himself, right? Everyone who is first shall be last, and the last first Anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven must become your slave, must become your bondservant. God flips our ideas of power and authority on their head and says everyone that comes into the kingdom of God does so lowly and humble as a servant. 
And so he calls slaves, bondservants, servants, remember Jesus and remember the prize. Remember the inheritance that your true master has promised you. But as Paul finishes his instruction to slaves, you you can sense him anticipating an objection that would have come in. Paul does this better than just about anybody. Anytime you're reading one of Paul's letters, you get to a certain point. I mean, I guess having the Holy Spirit inspire you is kind of a cheat. But anytime you get to a point where you're thinking, yeah, Paul, but what about... He he says, but you may say. I was going to say that. And right here he says he anticipates an objection because you can hear a slave at Colossae hearing this and thinking, man, that's amazing about that promise. but, But Paul, you don't know how my master treats me. You don't look, you know, and you can picture one taking off his cloak, seeing the scars of whips and scourges on his back. You don't know what I've had to deal with. How can you, Paul, sit back there and tell me that I have to obey my master in everything, that I have to work for him as I work for Jesus? You don't know. Does it matter what he's done to me? Is there no justice for this? And so Paul says in verse 25, you're serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Remember, in that culture, slaves had no rights. If a master wanted to kill a slave, he could, and nobody was going to say a word about it. If a slave complained that he was being treated unjustly, the the response of the community wouldn't be, no big deal. It would be, what do you mean unjust? You have no rights. Like, you're a slave. He can do whatever he wants. People would not have batted an eye. It would not have even it would not raise a single flag. Paul says that the judge of the earth knows and shows no partiality. And their world was full of it. Partiality was rampant. How you were treated in society was based on who you were, by your station in life, by how much money you had, by where you came from. And while we've made a lot of strides in 2,000 years, anybody want to go on the record this morning and say our world is free of partiality? No, that's a joke. We, we know it's not. You're still treated in a certain way based on who you are, based on where you're from, based on the color of your skin, based on how much money is in your bank account, based on who you know, based on how important you're perceived to be, based on what you can do, how talented you are. All of those things stack the deck against you for or against. Our world is a world built on partiality. And what we're told here is that God knows none of it. That God looks down on us all and sees us all on an equal footing. In God's sight, master and slave, those distinctions don't matter. They're both men. And God will judge both of them by the same standard because they're both equal in worth and value. They're both equally made in the image of God. This was a revolutionary thing in that world. For God to say master and slave are both on an equal standing in their worth, in their value, slaves had no worth. They had no value. But God says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And while there's partiality in this life, while you suffer in this life and nobody cares with God, there is no partiality. No master is going to be able to say, what do you mean I can't do that? God doesn't care who they are. He doesn't care how much power, influence, money they have. What he's in essence doing is he's saying, slave, look, you don't have to worry about retribution. You don't have to worry about vengeance. God's got it. He will take care of the wrong that is done. And it doesn't matter that nobody cares about you because God does. He doesn't care how powerful your master is. 
The one who has done wrong will be paid back. Justice will be served. You worry about your own holiness. You worry about your own righteousness. Right? It doesn't work to repent for the other guy's sin. You repent for you. You strive after holiness yourself. And Paul in this command is freeing them to do that. Remember Jesus, remember the prize, and remember God's justice. None can escape it. God will do what is good and right, and he will punish the wrongdoer, whoever they, whoever they are, and whatever station in life they happen to occupy. So that takes us through the instruction that's given to masters and slaves. Now, you'll notice so far that I really haven't made any application outside of the specific circumstances addressed by Paul. I've tried to keep this very much in context. What is it that Paul is saying to the people who would have heard these words? How does it address address the immediate culture in which they lived? Now that we've started to see that, now that we've seen what he's saying and the radical nature of it, we can begin to look for principle. So what, what is the underlying principle that's at play in our text today? I'd suggest to you it's this. Those who are under authority and obligation should live and serve not simply to please the one they are under or gain advancement for themselves, but as if they are under the direct authority of Jesus because they are. If you are under authority and obligation. You should live and serve, not simply to please the one that you're under, not simply to gain advantage for yourself, but work and live as if you are under the direct authority of Jesus, because you are. The organizational chart of your life, you've got a direct line to Jesus. It's not a dotted line. It's not one of those sideways where you've got five other branches of authority. You've got a line straight to the top. You answer to Christ. You answer to him above any earthly power. And let that fact influence the way that you work to the earthly powers you do report to, to the authorities that you do answer to, to those that you are under. So how do we apply this today? Well, like we said earlier, the most common way that we do this is with our jobs. I'd wager that everybody in this room who works a job outside the home, you're under some sort of authority. You answer to somebody. You may like them, you may hate working for them, but you answer to somebody. There's somebody that's going to sign the check that you have to report to, that you have to follow their instruction. Paul says, whether you like them or not, it's irrelevant because you ultimately work for Jesus. So start to examine the way that you work at your job under the framework that we're given in this text by Paul. Do you work differently when your boss is around than when he or she isn't? Right? Obey in everything, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Do you work with sincerity of heart in everything that you do? On days when you feel great, on days when you don't feel like being there. If Jesus were supervising your work directly in an earthly sense, if he was bodily in the building with you, how would your actions be different? What would a work day, how would a work day look differently for you if that were the case? Maybe more importantly than your actions, how would your attitude be different if Jesus were physically present with you on the job? When you're wronged at work, do you spend time seething and making sure everybody knows about the injustice? Making sure everybody knows about that thing that your boss did, about that, that thing that they asked you to do, about that way that, you know, that they made your day harder because they're a moron and they don't know what they're doing. Do you make sure everybody has to know about that? Or do you trust God's justice and continue to work hard with everything that you have? 
But more than just employee, more than just employees are under authority, right? We talked last week about authority in the home, husbands, wives, parents, kids. We're under authority in the church. We're under authority in our schools. We're under authority in a civil sense. Tom, for our scripture reading today, read Romans 13 about our responsibilities to the governing authorities. Even taxes are, are God says you've got to pay taxes. So like we all understand authority that we, we don't like and we chafe against it, but we're all under it. And so we can apply this principle across the board. In our fallen state, look, we don't want authority. I, this always makes me think of when I was in college, uh, and I took Dr. Oreck's great book seminar, and one of the things that we had to read was the Lord of the Rings. We had to read the three Lord of the Rings books over three weeks. I love Lord of the Rings. Like, this is well-established. If you know me in any sense, like, this is great. And so we have to read Lord of the Rings, my favorite books. I love the movies. But when it was an assignment, and you told me, you have to read the three Lord of the Rings books over the next three weeks, I didn't want to do it. There were days where I was like, I don't want to read this right now. It's my favorite stinking book. And I'm like, no, I don't want This is the most perfect school assignment there could ever be. But because of the fact that someone told me I had to, I didn't want to do it. That's the way that we are. That's the way our hearts operate. That's the way we, we chafe against authority. But what if in your classwork, in your home life, in your political discourse, what would it look like if you worked in each of those spheres heartily as the Lord and not for men? If you'd allowed this text, this attitude, to transform the way you responded to that authority at school, to that authority at work, to that authority in society, how would it change? How would your attitudes change? Work heartily as the Lord and not for men. Remember Jesus. Remember who you truly serve. Remember the prize. Remember the inheritance. It feels like you're just going around the hamster wheel day after day after day working for nothing. You've been called to an eternal hope, to a perfect future. And remember God's justice. You are free when you are wronged. You are free when you suffer. You are free when you suffer injustice and nobody knows and nobody sees and nobody cares. You are released from having to worry about how you're going to make it right, how you're going to stick it to the man, because God sees and he knows and he values you and promises that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. Don't you worry about this. I got it. The need for vengeance and retribution will eat away at your soul. God says, don't bother with that. Let me take care of justice. You honor Jesus. Servants, bondservants, slaves, obey your masters. But that's not our only point. That's not our only command today. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, we are told that masters need to do something as well. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this would have been a shocking turn in the ancient world. Paul doesn't just address slaves, but he has a command for masters too. You don't... You, you didn't command masters. Masters had no obligation to their slaves. They didn't have to do anything. And yet Paul says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Now think about what all is wrapped up in this command. So the, the role of a master, the job of a master, what a master is obligated under God to do is to treat his slave justly and fairly. Well, who defines justice? Who defines fairness? 
God does. God's word tells us what it looks like to treat someone justly and fairly. The law that was given to Israel was a perfect expression of God's justice, right? The Old Testament law revealed to the people of Israel says, this is what justice looks like for you as a people in your society. And how did Jesus sum up the law? Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus says, masters, you need to treat your servants like that. What you want someone to do for you, you do for them. Jesus is taking masters and slaves, and he's making them brothers. That's the truly revolutionary nature of the instruction that we have from Paul. Because in order to be obedient to chapter 4, verse 1, a master has to stop looking at his servant, bondservant, slave as someone who works for them or as something that they own. They look at them as a brother. They treat them in the way that they would want to be treated. And we have a fantastic case study of this in the Bible. An entire book of the Bible is dedicated to a case study in this reality, and that's the book of Philemon. If you're not familiar with Philemon, this is a book written by Paul, uh, and it's about a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave, and he runs away from his master, who was a Christian named Philemon. And Philemon and Paul were acquainted. So Onesimus runs away, and from the context in the letter, it looks like he probably stole some stuff as he left. So Onesimus leaves his master, steals from him, and runs off. It's a crime punishable by death in the ancient world. If Onesimus is caught, his life is forfeit. But Paul, in a a chance encounter, but nothing's really chance, in an encounter, Onesimus runs into Paul in his flight, and Paul befriends Onesimus, and Onesimus meets Jesus through the witness of the apostle Paul and becomes a Christian and becomes a faithful friend and brother to Paul while Paul is in chains. And so Paul then sends him back to Philemon, But he sends him back with an appeal to accept Onesimus into his household again, but in a brand new way. I want you to listen to this from Philemon, uh, the one and only chapter of Philemon, verses 12 through 16. This is what Paul says to Philemon about Onesimus. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." Paul says, I'm sending him back to you. And I, you know, he'll say elsewhere in the letter, you know, you know Jesus because of my witness. He's like, I could sit here and tell you, take him back. But I'm going to appeal to you. I want your good to be from the heart, not under compulsion. I want you to take him back and not just as a slave anymore. He's your brother. He is, he is dear to you in a spiritual sense And in a physical sense, embrace him, welcome him back into your household. Paul even says, and whatever he he owes you, charge it to me. Put it on my account. Put it on my tab. But you welcome him back. This is a society-transforming paradigm 
that is being introduced here. When a master is called to treat his bondservant, servant, slaves justly and fairly and understands what God means by that, slavery as an institution cannot long survive. And that ultimately, years down the road, is what broke the institution of slavery. It's what brought men like William Wilberforce in England to crusade to see it abolished because as they understood the magnitude of what Jesus has done for masters, for slaves, how he's transformed us and is bringing us and uniting us into a brotherhood called the church, this can continue. When you treat your slaves justly and fairly, you begin to, re- to, re- to realize what justice and fairness require. And it's the end of the line for that institution. It's why we sing at Christmas time, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. That is what the gospel does. So this command is ultimately what brought about the undoing of slavery. And the command is remarkable enough, but note the reasoning behind it. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul calls masters to remember that they also have a master in heaven. So in its most basic form, the teaching of this passage is this. Slaves and servants... You are really serving the Lord of all creation, so honor and obey your master. Masters, you're really just slaves and servants of the Lord of all creation, so you honor and obey your master. The point of this text, the the principle that's at play that we need to remember and understand is that every man is a servant. The distinction of slave and master is a false one. We all are slaves, bond servants, servants, serving the one true living master, the one true living king, our savior, Jesus Christ. Every man is a servant. So how are we serving? Masters are called to serve. Those in authority, those with authority, are called to wield it in a way that serves. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came into the world? Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus had supreme authority. He's God. But he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the likeness of a man, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Though path to exaltation is humiliation. We are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. So, This instruction that's given to masters, let's apply that to anyone today who wields authority in any way. Those of you who supervise employees, do you treat them justly and fairly? Do you treat them the way that you would want to be treated? Do you take the time to get to know them, love them, care for them to the best of your abilities? That's different than just running a business. It requires more of you. It requires your soul. When you find yourself in a position of authority, leadership, or influence of any kind, do you act like you call the shots? Or do you live with the ever-present and humbling knowledge that you are also under authority? You are under a far greater authority and exercise yours accordingly. Let's get specific with it in a couple ways. Because there's authority in the church, right? Pastors and deacons. Have you ever thought over the years, as a growing Christian, I wish leaders in the church would do blank, X, fill it in. What is it that as you were a young Christian and you were growing in the faith, you said, man, I wish my pastor, I wish my deacon, I wish my small group leader, I wish he would do this. This would help me so much to grow. Now that you're in that position, how can you do that for others? 
How can you be that in the life of someone who looks up to you as a pastor, looks up to you as a deacon, looks up to you as a small group leader? Here's a real specific application. We have lots of teachers here for a small congregation. Um, Almost a quarter of our membership at Trinity are teachers. So teachers, when you were students, what kind of teacher, what teacher did you have went above and beyond to demonstrate care and respect for you? What did you think of the best teacher you ever had? What was it that they did that made them the best teacher? How did they go above and beyond to show their love for you, to be just and fair and loving in, their, in the way that they taught you? How did they do it? And how can you do that in the lives of your students? How can you wield the authority that you've been given in the school in a way that is sacrificial, that makes yourself a servant to those students and builds them up in the way that someone did in your life as you were growing up? For all of us, how does the fact that you are under God's constant authority change the way that you should wield yours? You might have a lot of authority. You might supervise a whole group. You might run your own company. Or you might have little authority. You might think, you know, how how can I influence the lives of two kids that I see during the week or in my own home? Whatever degree you have it to, how does the fact that you are under God's constant and perfect authority change the way that you should wield yours? How does it change your actions? How does it change your attitudes? So, what do we do with this text? How do we put it to work in our lives? How do we put a bow on this study in chapter 3 as we move down the home stretch of chapter 4 in Colossians? Well, the first question that I would ask to you this morning, have you realized that you are under the authority of a heavenly master? Do you see anything above you? Or like the old John Lennon song, is up there only sky? Because if up there is only sky, if you've never submitted yourself to the king of all creation, to the lord of all the universe, then you're never going to wield authority right. Because if you think the buck stops here, you're going to screw it up. You, have you realized that you are under the authority of a heavenly master? And once you realize that he is there, are you going to continue to rebel against his rule? Or will you submit yourself to the one who would adopt you as a son or daughter and promises you an infinite inheritance? Jesus Christ came into this world, lived, died, rose again to bring us out of bondage and slavery to sin and call us into his family. And he promises that we are co-heirs with him. Will you this morning turn from sin, turn from rebellion against God and cling to him in faith? Trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't know how to do that, but you're interested, talk to me, talk to Pastor Dave, talk to Pastor Tom, talk to one of the people here at Trinity, and we would love to start that conversation. What does it mean to realize that we are under the authority of God and invited into his family through faith in Jesus Christ? For those of us who are trusting in Christ, who realize that we're under his heavenly, perfect authority, how do you need to change in your response to authority? or in your exercising of it? One, the other, both? How does your attitude need to change? I think that's probably the most crucial area for us to start to examine, right? Because you can clean up actions, but it's very easy to clean up actions and to become people pleasers, to serve by way of eye service, to fall into that trap that Paul warns us against. You clean up your attitude and your action will follow suit and it will come from a good heart, from a good place. It'll bear good fruit in your life. So how does your attitude need to change when you're under authority? And how does your attitude need to change when you are in authority in order to be obedient to the commands of your true heavenly master? 
who exercised his authority over you by humbling himself, by coming to serve, by coming to die. And then finally, do you want to change the world? Here's your model. Who would have ever imagined that the commands we find in this text, slaves obey your masters, would eventually destroy the institution of slavery? It seems counterintuitive, right? The way you destroy a long-standing injustice is you start a revolution. You overthrow the authority. You grab your torch and pitchfork. You burn the place down. You fight. You, you, you claw. You scrap. You do whatever you have to do to get yours. And the world is filled with a history of revolutions bathed in bloodshed that cannot bring about lasting peace. One authority gets replaced with another one. We tear down the czar and we put the Politburo in its place. We, in our own failures, in our own sin, cannot bring about lasting change. But when we come in obedience to Jesus Christ... Who knows what God will do with it? Who knows how he will use your small, insignificant obedience to transform the world? That's how he operates. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed that someone planted in the ground. It starts as a tiny seed, and it becomes the greatest tree in the garden. It's like a little bit of leaven that someone puts in a lump of dough, and when they go away and they come back, it's all risen. It's worked its way all through there. It's slow. It's imperceptible. It might seem counterintuitive at the time, but it, provo- it provides lasting and incredible change. Are you willing to be that kind of revolutionary? Whatever God has formed your passion to look like, whatever you want to see accomplished in this world, are you ready to do the little things, the little bits of obedience that seem inconsequential and pray that God would use your efforts to transform the world? Are you aspiring to this kind of humble obedience or to some personal grandeur? Don't come to be served. Don't come to change the world by your ideas, by your big visions and dreams, but you come and you change the world by following Jesus Christ and submitting your desires to those of your heavenly master and asking him, help me to know right now, today, how would you have me to act as one under authority or as one with authority? We've got a lot of changing to do in our lives, a lot of application, a lot to think about, a lot to talk about this week at group. Let's ask God to help us in that effort, to give us his grace, to give us his spirit, and to assist us as we seek to be good and faithful servants. Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you that you are our true master, that you promise us an inheritance that you are just, that you are good, that you are no respecter of persons, you show no partiality. Father, help us to trust you, to rejoice in your good and loving care over us. And in all that we do, as we live under authority, as we live with authority, help us to remember that we answer not to self, not to an org chart, not to a paycheck, but to Jesus. Father, may we take our cues from him. May we serve like Jesus served. May we lead like Jesus leads. May you humble us. God, give us hearts that are, that are broken down. Make us willing to make ourselves nothing, to take the form of a servant.
Make us obedient to the point of death if that's where you call us. But daily you call us to death to self. Help us to die to self, to our desires. When we're under authority and have no ability to bring our desires about, help us to trust that you watch over us, that you care for us, that you care and feed us. That we are of more value than the birds of the air, but you feed and care for them. Father, when we have the power and authority to make our desires happen, may we remember that we will find no fulfillment in those desires to serve self, to please self. But God, may we use the power, the influence that you give us to make Christ great in whatever way we can. God, it is difficult to put our will to death and we need your help. We desperately need the grace of Jesus to assist us, to carry us, to drive us. And we pray that you would do that this morning and that anyone who is here who has not taken that first step, who does not know the joy that comes from serving the perfect and true master. God, may you open their eyes. May they see clearly their need for a savior and the glory of the one who calls them. God, be glorified in and through us today and as we go from here this week, we pray in Jesus' good name, amen.